a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. This is the story of Star Wars. You can read along with me in your book. O is for Obi-Wan Kenobi. All rebel fighters met at fleet headquarters to plan their attack. Princess Leia addressed them. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. Hello, I am C-3PO, and you are about to listen to the story of Star Wars. Another chapter is here. Welcome to Don't Burn the Sacred Text. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and I am not here with my regular co-host, but I am excited to welcome back to the show the coolest Ewok this side of the Western reaches. It's Amanda, everybody. I hope I'm a little less furry, although the size is probably about right. <laughs> for both of us. That's true for both of us. <laughs> We're pocket size. We're, yeah. We're fun size. Um, yeah. So for those of you who don't know, Amanda runs our Patreon and does an awesome job of it. Uh, that Patreon supports our nonprofit arm, which is where we put uh, we work to put Star Wars books into classrooms across the country. So it's a really important part of what we do here, and it could not happen without our amazing patrons who are listening and our supporters. Even if you can't support, you can always uh, share episodes, um, nominate teachers, all of those good things that we talk about on each episode. So please make sure you do that. And if you are interested in learning more about that Patreon, head over to patreon.com slash clashing sabers, and you can look at the different levels and what you get and how you can be a part of uh, what we're trying to do. So I mean, before we kind of move on, is there anything on the Patreon you want to drop now that you're on the main feed? <laughs> so special. I know, um, right? I am working on a few ideas that I'm lining up guests and things for. So what I'm going to talk to my friend who is very, very knowledgeable about deep lore in Star Wars and has never watched the animated series but did watch Ahsoka, so I'm very curious how that played out for someone who's never seen it. And then yeah, that's interesting. I've got a ranking of Disney Plus TV shows on the works, uh, including Marvel and Star Wars, and a fun Christmas thing, too. So. All right, so lots of good stuff coming out. I'll give you guys a spoiler, even though I'm not going to be on the, the ranking Disney Plus shows. Loki Season 2 is the best Disney Plus Star Wars, or any show, not even Star Wars show. It's even better than the best of the Star Wars shows. Holy cow. It's phenomenal. <laughs> it's <laughs> like... It's going to be hard to... I'm not huge on ranking, but I thought it would be kind of fun. So it uh, should be a good discussion. It's a fun challenge in something like that where you've got different, uh, you know, universes um, and you've got different styles of storytelling. Like, there's so many elements <laughs> to kind of analyze that it makes it impossible but also exciting. There's different tones within mm -hmm. the universes. Anyway, yeah, it's a complicated yeah. mess we're going to try to to figure out. Awesome, awesome. So head on over there, guys. And uh, moving on, uh, we're going to talk about this episode where we are going to be talking about Tales of Light and Life, the new book in the High Republic canon. Uh, we're not getting into Eye of Darkness yet. I'm currently finishing it. I know uh, Drew and DeVore talked a little bit about it on the main show, if you want to go over there and get a little teaser of their opinions, but that will be something that will be coming up soon uh, in the Don't Burn the Sacred Text uh, galaxy. But uh, before we actually get into Tales of Light and Life, what we like to do here is uh, give our ratings of the book overall uh, prior to discussing. Uh, it's on a scale of one to five, so we, we do that. You can do half numbers, however you want to do it. Uh, I think... 
at one point we ranked something with like a 2.87 or something. It was just, it, we, we make up the rules as we go along because it's our show and we can do whatever we want. Um, and then we'll have our conversation and at the end we will re-rank things. So just so everybody knows because this is a book of short stories because you know we've never had enough of that uh this rating is going to be for the overall book uh we're not going to rate for each individual um story so uh amanda i'm going to let you do it first as you are the guest on a scale of one to five how do you rate tales of light and life well i will tell you that rating i just said it is really hard for me including this um I tend to be a structure rubric based person and ratings can be a little subjective, a lot subjective. Uh, so I took an approach this time where I did rate the individual stories. I'm not sure that they're where I want them to be exactly, but in the moment I rated them and then I averaged them. But at the time I was also trying to feel out my gut too. So my gut said, not great, not awful, two and a half, maybe a three. My mathematical equation came up with 2.66666. So I have a seven somewhere at the end. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. That's great. So gut and math match, I guess. All right. Well, I'm going to give this one a three out of five. Uh, I think it's a good book, and uh, I think the stories in it that are good are really good. Uh, but the rest of the stories are just average. Uh, that's not saying they're bad in any way, shape, or form. Uh, we need... Uh, you know, average stories to be able to really value the great stories. Um, that said, I will go out on a very stable limb, if you've listened to our other episodes, and say that this is the best book of Star Wars short stories that we've had in canon, and maybe ever, including Legends. Uh, I just think it it did a lot of good stuff. I think that it uh, told really solid stories. There was no... There really wasn't a story that made me want to put the book down, which I can't say for pretty much every other collection of short stories, save for maybe Legends of Luke Skywalker that I've read. Uh, the Aliens book was garbage. Canto Bite was boring. Mm, from a certain point of view, is not my jam. So, like, we've got a bunch of these short story books that I, I if you've listened for a while, you know I'm not a huge fan of the format, but... It seems like we're going to continue getting them, and I'm going to continue reading them. So, you know, who's more foolish, the fool or the fool who follows them? But uh, with that said, um, I think that this one was the best of, uh, I don't want to say the best of the books I don't like, but best of a format that I am not um, really a huge fan of. I think they optimized it uh, in terms of what they were trying to do to build uh, us from the end of phase two into where we were going to go in phase three, which is really what this book does. That's kind of, I think, the overall objective of the book is to to lead us from, okay, here's what happened after uh, phase two, and then here's where we are at when we start phase three, because phase three picks up a year after the fall of Starlight Beacon. So there's some gaps to fill in there. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and get into the stories. And we're just going to go through an order and uh, and kind of spend a few minutes on each story, talk about what we like, what we didn't like, and uh, and go from there. So starting off with the story by Zoraida Cordova called The Queen's Bloom. And uh, Mr. Axel Greylark is back up to his shenanigans at school. Uh, he's pretending to be his father at a party until he finds out his father is actually there. Uh, he then runs into the mother uh, to bring her, or before she was the mother, to say. Uh, and I don't know. It, it was fine. Uh, not a huge Axel fan. 
don't really care what happens to him, not invested in him in any way, shape, or form. And that's kind of, it kind of killed the story for me. Um, it's a fine story. It does a good job of showing why Axel valued the relationship with his father so much, which is a part of, of his story there. Uh, it gives a little bit of a background to why he's so distraught in the other stories we get. But at the end of the day, it's still an Axel Greylock story. And Axel Greylock stories are just not that interesting. So Amanda, thoughts on The Queen's Bloom? This is one that I did rate higher and thought maybe if I went back, I'd probably reduce it a little bit. He's also not my favorite. Um, Kind of annoys me. (laughs) I don't know. I'm not into chaos, I guess. But um, I really, I don't know if I just was, I was, I read these quickly and I felt like an idiot because I didn't realize that Alicia was the mother for the longest time. I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> how long has it been <laughs> since I've read these books? There's a lot to keep track um, of in the High Republic. Like we seriously need is. a flow chart. There is. Yeah. That is, that was one of my overarching, not an issue with this book, just in general, like it's been so long since we've been to phase one and mm-hmm. I don't have time to reread them. So kind of an, a tangent there, but um it did impact how I felt about a lot of these stories because I was struggling to remember the characters. Went to Wikipedia several times. Um, so anyway, the reason I think I rated it higher initially was because of that insight into his relationship with his dad. I really felt like that was something that we that was lacking in the stories we've had about him previously. We've it was a a tell not show sort of situation and here we got to actually see it in action and so I really appreciated that but being a short story also not my favorite format it was too short so it didn't add as much as I would have hoped but I did really enjoy getting that glimpse into why he became who he became and threatened the entire galaxy later (laughs) yeah he kind of was the worst. Uh, It really was. I think this story should have focused on one thing or the other. It should have focused on either his relationship with his father or uh, his meeting of the mother because I think neither Mm -hmm. one got enough time. And I, Mm -hmm. I, I think Zoraida Cordova is trying to set up a dichotomy between like what the mother will provide him later and what his father provides him because... I don't know if you remember at the beginning of Kenobi. I'm rewatching Kenobi right now. After Leia runs off and then she comes back to greet the cousins or whatever, and Bale is like, "What ships did you see today?" And they're kind of bantering back and forth, and you can tell like the relationship they have is really solid. I got those kind of vibes with Axel and his father at the end, where it's like, okay, I see why he would value that relationship so much, but I still didn't really fully believe in why he would go from that relationship and try to replace it more or less with his relationship with the mother. So it felt kind of lackluster in that aspect. And I think if we had just focused on his relationship with his father, uh, it would have added a little bit more. But I think it's one of those things where they're like, ah, we've got to get the major characters in here so that people can start seeing these connections. But right now this story feels like creating content for content sake, which I don't think is, is, uh, necessarily the best approach to it i think that's fair i I do we are such character driven readers and Mm -hmm. have a short story is it can be done we have read stories where it has been done well even i've only read a certain point of view 
um, short story collections. And there's a lot of stinkers, but there's some great character development even within those. But this was not it, but it was a taste of it. So. Yeah. Well, that moves us on to uh, A Closed Fist Has No Claws by Tessa Groton. And talking about um, character-driven stories, I mean, anything with Marta Rowe is just an expose on that. And so this is Marta after Path of Vengeance. So she's taken over the Gaze Electric. She's out in the galaxy. And the format is really interesting because she's writing to someone, but we never actually find out who she's writing to. Like we can assume she's writing to the Rose of the future. But there was a part of me that wondered if maybe she was pregnant and she was writing to her child who was going to be... Asgar, I think, is is Marcian Rowe's father, because um, I think uh, Marta Rowe is supposed to be his grandmother, or great grandmother, based on the timeline. So did you get any idea of like exactly who she was talking to, other than just a future generation? At the beginning, it says, "I'm your mother. I'm your grandmother. I'm your great grandmother." I believe it kind of goes into that. So I subscribe to the general lineage idea. Okay. And I actually kind of, when I was writing in a journal, I would do the same thing. I'll, a lot of my, you know, super teenage angsty entries in my teenage journal is Dear Future Kid. You know, and so oh, yeah. I really kind of connected with that idea. Everything was, I needed to picture a person to write to. So um, Future Kid never materialized, but I've got some great angst in there. <laughs> <laughs> and there is some angst in this story. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> at first, I wasn't. I can't compete with that. <laughs> Right. Like at first I wasn't really enjoying the story because I thought the writing style was very chaotic and jerky. But as I started to realize what the story was, I realized that like that was the point. It's showing the state of Marta's mental health and her instability at the time. And uh, that really started to hit for me. Um, I, I honestly think this is the best story in the book because you get like I felt like Path of Vengeance ended at a good place for that book to end, but I don't feel like it ended in a good place for phase two to end. I was like, wait a minute, we just got to the point that I wanted to get to where she's starting to form what will be the Nile. And so here you get that when she meets the other Evereni and learns some of their culture and the importance of names, which is a really interesting idea when you think about like the crux of phase three is around another row that serves or, or that controls the nameless. So just the idea of the importance of names and that dichotomy there is really interesting. And this idea that there is a planet where uh, in the Ryston system where the Evereni meet, like I thought that was a cool way to show how she's in her head, she's trying to push forward. You know, she's talking to these future generations as if she's setting up for them, which I guess she is. But she also is really stuck in the past and that hollowness that exists in her past, that hole that she's always been trying to fill. And now it's driven her to this point of insanity, really. Um, that's really what she's on the verge of is is a, I mean, a, a mental break. And I say that, you know, as very respectfully as somebody who deals with mental health issues, like it really feels like she is on the edge of doing something very bad, which of course she's going to be the, the, the spark that lights that fire of the Nile that uh, is going to torture the galaxy for, for years. So, um, and that's really what it comes down to is Marta is trying to establish her legacy. Like that's how the story ends. And it, it ends with her saying, uh, 
that she wants to create a legacy and then there's a little break and it says yours. So just that idea of, of her being caught in the past but also trying to move things forward I think was a really interesting um, way to present this character at a time where she's really on the verge of, of something dangerous and creating something that's going to hurt a lot of people. And it's kind of goes to that idea of hurt people, hurt people, you know, like she is going to hurt people for generations because of the pain of abandonment that I think she feels. It's true. And what I picked up on contemplated the most, I guess, is the issue of nature versus nurture and how I feel like, at least in um, Path of Deceit, we're told that uh, her race or mm, species uh, is known and feared throughout the galaxy for their, their um, oh my goodness, words are failing me. Not a good time for that. <laughs> but they they look murderous. dangerous. They're, yeah. they're dangerous. They're danger. They're danger. And she's presented as such a kind, sweet soul who struggles with this meeting people who, um, who judge her based on what she looks like. And then she becomes that very thing later on. And it becomes a how did that happen? And we see that. But just this was a hard read for me just because of who she was and who she is now really just broke my heart. Like I just it was a good a struggle does not mean a bad story at all. It can be a very good story. In this case, that's the case. For me, that was the case. But it was so hard for me to read that. Because I just felt it so deeply. Yeah, I would argue that this is the best story in the book, um, and possibly I the most important. With you. Yeah, mm-hmm. yep. like she becomes who. Like I have this theory that when we try to not become something, that's who we become, and that we need to want to become something. Like it's it's about wanting to be something, not wanting to not be something, and so. Uh, it's kind of like the analogy I'm thinking of is in golf. I don't know if you ever played golf, but when you're playing golf, um, especially when you're as piss poor as I am at the game, if you buy water, they always tell you like, don't concentrate on not hitting the water, concentrate on where you're trying to hit it past the water. Right. And I think Marta is just like again and again and again, hitting it into the water because she's so caught up in that, um, I mean, the the loss and the trauma of not knowing where she's from and, like you said, being judged based on how she looks, you know, uh, and the unfairness of that. Like, it is unfair to be treated like that, even though it is a reality for a lot of, of people. So I think it makes her a very interesting and compelling character. And I have a weird feeling we're not done with her. Like, I've got about 90 pages left in Eye of Darkness. I don't know if we'll get any direct things in there but to me this was them kind of saying hey her story's not over yet when she's the most compelling character to come out of that i i think out of uh, phase two so I possibly the whole high republic continue. like she's not my favorite possibly but she, the whole republic yes. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I mean, she um, really drives the story doesn't she she does she does and and i think there's a lot there still to uncover so that leads us into our next story, which is Shield of the Jedi by George Mann. And I would say this is the second best story uh, because it's written by George Mann, who is just 
an amazing writer. And uh, also it has Salandra Show. So she was my favorite character coming out of phase two of High Republic. She's no Vernestra. I still love Vernestra, but I love uh, Salandra's uh, approach to being a Jedi about always being the shield. And so in this one, she's having her Padawan Rupert Natai uh, find the shield in order to become a Jedi Knight. And I like the story. Uh, the storyline is a tad predictable in that we can assume she's going to find the shield and it's going to be about more than finding the shield. And even she realizes that like it doesn't talk down to the audience as if we haven't seen a story like this. She Rupert knows like in the story, oh, hey, I uh, this probably is about more than the shield. Um and she learns, you know, that the shield is more about helping people uh, and that being the first and foremost thing a Jedi should be focusing on. So all of that pretty basic, solid story written super well because George Manigan is just an amazing writer. Uh, and, and I liked the ending where she, uh, Salandra passes on the shield to Ruper and that it's essentially a, an heirloom from Master to Padawan. And I would like to see that kind of be brought back in phase three Um as as this thing of legacy and maybe that's something they can use to help them defeat the nameless i don't know but i think it would be really cool for this to be a setup for hey not only is this shield cool not only are we making a point with this shield but we are setting up something that's going to pay off at the end of the high republic where the shield's actually going to play a big role um in the story because i think the high republic a lot of it is about legacy you know we got that with marta um we're getting that with uh, I won't say any spoilers, but in Eye of Darkness, Elzar is dealing a lot with the loss of Stellan and how he carries on his legacy. Um, we we get Martian obviously taking on the, the legacy of Marta Rowe. So it would be nice to have kind of this talisman that's passed down from Jedi to Jedi that has a deeper meaning that we as the audience know that maybe the Jedi are discovering um, or has been lost and it's the key to something. I think that could be really, really cool. Uh, Salandra is also my favorite character out of the High Republic. I love the idea of not just the shield, but the shield in conjunction with her lightsaber. She doesn't not carry one. She doesn't not use one. But that is not her first line of defense. She actually does defend with her shield first and then backs it up with a more lethal force if necessary. And I love the the depth of that philosophy and just how we need to be the same way yeah and um, it's it's something so really rupert realizes that. throughout the story mhm mm mhm mm yeah i was i didn't love the story as much just because it was more rupert than salandra and i care more about salandra but yeah that's valid it's it's the point of the story and <laughs> it is batu which if you've been to disney world or land that holds a special place in most of our hearts so i got pretty excited about that um it's just and i had nice just recently to... gone so you have yeah. yeah yeah i was i was very into i could visualize it was fun to kind of visualize a not as broken down batu in this story which <laughs> yes is really right. cool right because like the other stories we had before how it's not the same yeah, oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, I, it was, you know, in the past we had Black Spire, the Black Spire book and mm -hmm. uh, Crash of Fate, where it was how it is if you go there right now. But it was fun mm -hmm. to think about mm -hmm. it in kind of a prequelized uh, image of like, everything's not as worn down. Things have been taken care of. There's a glisten to the galaxy. And yeah, it's just, it's right. always fun to revisit Batu. And I like when they tell these 
little stories that don't do anything earth shattering that it's like, well, why isn't that in the park or whatever? But it's just fun to go, hey, you know, it's like um, there's one of the books in phase two of High Republic where it's one of the young, uh, the young reader ones where you've got the crew that's in the book, like sitting right before where, you know, the Millennium Falcon usually sits and you're like, I know that spot. It's just cool. It's just cool. <laughs> yes, it so, is. And you know, they have games in there. They could add a game of find the shield. Exactly. Exactly. That would be that'd be a lot of fun. Or Disney. You can build a shield. I'd be there for it. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I also my other note was Smog's cousin. They brought dragons into uh They did. (laughs) Yeah. I just thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. Um otherwise solid, cute story. He said not huge to the overall narrative, but some good insights nonetheless. It was an interesting story to add into this book because Really, like, neither Salandra nor Rupert are really essential to Phase 2 of the High Republic. Like, if you took them out, do you lose something? Technically speaking, yes. But do you really lose anything? I don't think so. And that's saying that as much as I have loved those stories, and I love Salandra, and I enjoy Rupert's stories, but none of theirs really, truly pushes the narrative that we get forward. Uh, Salandra is a great, you know, model of, uh, you know, being a shield first and the stories we get with Ruper, you know, she's headstrong, but shows, you know, the, the faith in the force and the desire to do the right thing that the Jedi of this era were, you know, very, um, still attached to, um, as they should be. I don't say attachment, attachment with Jedi is a (laughs) loaded word, um, but, so it was interesting to add this into the story because it's like, okay, you're only telling so many short stories and you're telling this with two essentially like not even B plot or C plot characters of phase two of the high Republic. So I really think that it's a setup for something like, I don't want to set myself up for failure, but I would be surprised if the shield doesn't come back in phase three in some way. We can certainly hope we can. We can. There's a lot of phase three. There's a lot of phase three coming. And um, that leads us into where the book starts to shift from the old and into the new. Um, And so basically from phase two into the phase one era, which is endlessly confusing as Star Wars likes to be in its iterative storytelling. Uh, But it leads us to The Lonely Traveler is Home by Daniel Jose Older. Um, This is another fun story. I think this would be one of those things that would have fit perfectly in a kid's show like Young Jedi Adventures because we have uh, Ram, who is a young uh, Jedi Padawan, deciding to throw a party for Zine Marla because she's homesick. And long story short, he goes around asking people for help, not knowing that Zine is uh, setting up a party for him and that everyone he's asking to help uh, are actually in on the surprise party for him. So... Again, this is another very basic, predictable storyline. That's not to say that it's bad. I don't think it is in any way, shape, or form. I think um, if if you've listened for any span of time, you know I'm not a huge Daniel Jose Older fan, although I recognize the importance of his voice in the canon and in Star Wars. Um, But the, the story with Ram was the first one for him that really hit with me. So it's nice to have uh, him writing that character again and to see, uh, you know, the mindset that Ram is at and how 
with the the threat of the Nile and people being shaken out of their normal reality that there is loss beyond just the life that's lost, that they're losing homes and they're losing their identities and that only together are they going to be able to find and hold on to those things. So I enjoyed that being part of, of the story overall. When I saw the author's name, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit. Not my favorite either. <laughs> my experience is limited, but it hasn't been my favorite. Um, not that I've hated anything, actually, but just not up there with some of the other names. And it turned out to be my least favorite story in the collection. But it did highlight a concept that is um, something that I think is lacking a bit in our society today and that we need a lot more, where when you have a friend in trouble, whatever's going on in your life just doesn't matter anymore, and you drop everything and run to go help. And um, I feel a lot of the times like I... I'm single, I don't have kids, I live kind of a selfish life in many ways, but boy, when my friends need me, I try to be there. And I really loved the example of that between the two, um, Ram and, oh my goodness, I forgot her name already. Zine. Um, Zine. I've even read the comics. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so many names. Um, they just were, both of them were a very good example of how they were both hurting very, very much, but their hurt did not matter as much as the other person's hurt. And they were going to move mountains to make it better. Like, yeah, I mean, that's the perfect way to say it. And it would, the only thing I might have changed is if like Ram didn't give up and he actually made the party and their parties were happening at the same time. And you've got like a, where is everybody moment? I thought that could have been pretty funny, but it is it's good to see those kind of of friendships especially for for young adult readers to see that kind of example um of like you said just drop everything and run for for your friends or the people that you love and care about and um right now we're at a time where i think the jedi are allowed to love because they see the difference between love and attachment uh you know, again, not spoilers for Eye of Darkness, but I will just say that Elzar absolutely loves uh, Avar Chris. There's zero doubt in that. Um, I'll let you see how that comes into play in that story. But on a smaller scale, it's nice to have it more than just once presented in, in a long-form uh, storytelling thing like High Republic so that you really nail home the theme of these Jedi are allowed to love. They might not say it exactly out loud, but they are allowed to love in a way that was taboo, uh, even for Anakin and Obi-Wan to love each other, you know? Um, and that that's what caused the problems. And so it's good to see that on larger scales with, you know, our adult characters, but it's definitely nice to see it in something like this. And I think, again, going back to my idea of this could have fit into Young Jedi Adventures, I just finished watching... Um, the new episodes they put out and I can literally visualize these characters in that in that story doing that because it's just the kind of, of Jedi that the Jedi are at this time. So I enjoyed that. Um, moving on, we get to After the Fall by Claudia Gray. We all know we love Claudia Gray. She is the OG in terms of best Star Wars writers. Uh, and this is a story with Afi Halo, Leox Jossi, a.k.a. Space Matthew McConaughey, and Geode. And they're helping refugees and survivors right after the fall of Starlight Beacon. 
which I think is an important story to tell um, because we pick up a year later when we get to Eye of Darkness. That's not a spoiler. Just it, that's the time period. Um, and so there's a lot that happens in between that time, and I'm hoping we get more of those stories. Uh, but this was a beautiful expose on the reaction of culture uh, concerning a major tragedy. It reminded me a lot of post 9-11 America of how it goes from sorrow to anger to trying to find a normal sense of life again to all of all of those things. I mean, I like the breakdown of it. It was like one day, one week, one month after the fall of Starlight Beacon. So that was a really interesting and compelling approach to take to the story. But I also just... I like that Affy meets this other, uh, not smuggler, but shipper um, who was part of the the burn guild that she that Affy um, was a part of shutting down because of its uh, indentured servitude practice, and they take that pain of the past and form something new that can be used to help people in this new revived burn guild, and so again. Affy, Hal, uh, Leox, and, and Geode, not necessarily characters I'm super invested in. Enjoy them. I think Geode's a lot of fun. Just listening to Leox talk, whether you're listening to the audiobook or just in your head, is fantastic. Love Space Matthew McConaughey. But um, again, not the not my favorite characters in the High Republic, but I thought that this was an, a very important story to tell, and it was nice to tell a story with your your everyday person rather than focusing on the Jedi um, because the Jedi are the heroes of the galaxy. And I think the point of this story is that being a true hero is, is taking and learning from the pain of the past, uh, not denying it, but also finding a way to utilize it and reinvent it to move forward. Yeah. I think that was that last point in particular was a really good one of a story that focuses on the everyday person. I, don't know that we got to. I'm looking at my list. There's not too many of those, are there? Um, I think Axel and this one are the only ones. Yeah. I guess Marta's not. Oh, yeah, Marta. Although she's not every day either, so I don't know what yeah. to call her. Um, that is a really important point of view to have. I think it's one reason Andor did so well as a series. Um, and I'm all about Jedi and mysticism. The Mortis arc's my favorite Clone Wars arc, but... Sometimes it's nice just to get the boots on the ground, people. Um, my favorite line was, what would Geo do? <laughs> For some reason, that character cracks me up. I, I don't He's know so exactly great. why. <laughs> He's so it's ridiculous, to too. And just it's so dumb. Like, okay, I don't know if you ever watched professional wrestling, but the, it's like improv. Like, your job as the opponent is to just sell whatever is happening. You have to believe that it's true. And the audience knows it's ridiculous, and the actors know it's ridiculous, the wrestlers know it's ridiculous, but they're they're going all in on it. And that's the only way you can make the audience really believe that this is, air quotes, real. You know, that real suspension of disbelief in something that is just asinine and ridiculous. And Claudia Gray is in full on yes and mode when it comes to Geode. Like the level to which she treats that character as if it were a li living, breathing character, which I know in the story it is, again, that adds to the character, but it's just, it's phenomenal. Like she sells it so well, and it would be so easy to 
write this character and have the other characters kind of be standoffish about it or whatever, but they're not. They're just right there in it, and it's fantastic. He's great. Um, I also thought of 9-11. That was very much in my mind reading this story, so it was interesting that you mentioned that as well. Um, And I really, there was the point where it really stood out to me, and I... My um, critique, I guess, of the story is it doesn't really lean into this as much as I would have liked, but it was there, and it's a short story. There's the the unity that happens after a crisis, right? But then after that, as you said, there's also the um, like when the when that initial come together and help each other and help fix things starts to fade in real life, starts to kick in again. That's when anger starts to come up and trying to find a place to put that anger and it's not always put where it should go or in the most constructive ways. And there was something about a banner. Ugh, it was like, we will fight that? the Nile or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, but it was, yes, but it was in a way that was just a stark contrast to what you had read right before. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wished I could have seen a little bit more of that shift into that mentality with the people and how that was dealt with uh, just because I find that more interesting I suppose but um, it was a solid story and it showed a a good variety of reactions and how that does sort of go through time and that there's there's not really a wrong way to handle that kind of trauma you know of of major events um, outside of of abandoning everybody else like you find a way to help others and you do it, you know, whether that's we see Afi helping. I think I think it's a VAR uh, pass out blankets and stuff. Um, and so it's like the little things are the things that matter. So I really liked getting to see that. But, you know, that story focuses on the everyday person after the fall of Starlight Beacon. Then we move to the force provides by the great Justina Ireland, uh, which is Vernestra Rowe, a Jedi right after the fall of Starlight Beacon. And. Oh, man. Um, So she's lost and broken at this time and has essentially left the Jedi and is roaming the galaxy, really trying to find her purpose. And she feels like she failed and was a major reason for the deaths on Starlight, which is the most Vernestra thing ever and is part of the reason that I relate to her is like she always puts everything on her shoulders um, as somebody who does that. Just saying, not the healthiest of approaches in life, um, but it is the reality of, of who Vernestra is. And so she meets this woman, Tanabi, who was a princess but gave it up to be a Robin Hood-esque pirate and have a family. Uh, and Tanabi gets Vernestra to help her protect the planet her son is on. But, of course, we've got to have a problem, uh, and that is that there are, are some pirates trying to keep the status quo. So... It was really an interesting story. I I think the only real problem with it is that it does get a little hard to follow all the characters because we meet so many in such a short span of time. But I like that in the end, Vernestra decides to stay on the planet and just give herself some time to heal after everything she's been through, Um, especially considering we pick up... Again, I'm going back to Eye of Darkness because I'm reading it right now, but when we pick up in Eye of Darkness, it's a year later, and so it's the the point of action. Uh, it's not the point of giving people time to sit and reflect, and those are always 
really good moments in Star Wars. I mean, think back to Rebels when we basically got a whole episode after uh, Kanan's death where we just get Hera and Sabine and Ezra and everybody just grieving. Uh, it, there's, there's, they do some stuff in that episode right after Jedi Knight, but that's really what it's about. And I felt like, yeah, here there's a plot, there's a story, but really it was about Vernestra realizing that there are other people out there who are trying to protect the galaxy and it's not her responsibility to protect it all and that she needs to stay and rest. And so I really liked getting that story um, with a character that matters so much to me. I I think we're friends for a reason. I also <laughs> see so much of myself in her. I wrote should have been better dash me exclamation mark. Um, as a teacher, I have struggled so hard with every failure to succeed is on the, for the students or their growth maybe is not what I want it to be. That's my fault. But if they do make growth, that's because they work at home with their parents or they're naturally gifted or things like that. And so I have a real struggle with recognizing my successes, but taking on all of the responsibility for the failures or I don't want to call in that example, failure is the wrong word, but um, it's a struggle sometimes <laughs> to be this way. It is. And uh, for Nestra's that gifted child, you know, growing up and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we, you, you've been on social media, you've seen the whole burnt out gifted child thing. Um, yeah. like that's, that's it. That's, that's the story. I mean, there's, and it's it, super it important. It's so, so beautiful. Like you said at the end that she is counseled and takes the counsel to go to a place of healing for a while. How, how much do we all need to hear that and then do it? Like, I feel like as a society, we're just go, 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 go all the time. Mm-hmm. And people throw around buzzwords like self-care. But who actually does it? Who rolls their eyes and says, that would be nice, but I don't have the time. I need to get this done still or yeah. what have you. So that story is a really, really good reminder of how we do need to stop, reflect, listen to people who are older, wiser, and take take a time out sometimes. Yeah. And it was nice seeing that happen. Like, it wasn't a master telling her that. It was, again, an everyday person. Because I think that's going to be kind of the crux of phase three of the High Republic is that the... And again, I this is not any spoilers for what I've read in Eye of Darkness in any way, shape, or form. This is just my own theory. Uh, I think that somehow the everyday person, the Afis and Tanabis and those of the galaxy are going to have to come together with the Jedi and it's that unity that's going to defeat the Nile because one, it makes sense that that would be what needs to happen uh, because that's the only way we get a greater force than the Nile. Like the Jedi alone are not going to be enough in my opinion. But also it would show how later when we get to the prequels and that disconnect between the everyday person and the Jedi has happened, uh, it would make that more powerful. So Vernestra getting to see that from an everyday person and being open to that, I think is part of what makes her such a good character is she deals with these problems that people like you and I, um, people in positions of leadership and with a lot of responsibility uh, deal with and she does it the right way. She doesn't do it the easy way. 
she doesn't do it the simple way, for sure. Uh, she doesn't always start doing it the right way, but she's open to her mistakes and learning to do it the right way, which I think is really, really interesting. And so that moves us into the next story where we get another character who puts a lot of weight on his shoulders, and that is Belzettifar. Um, this is all, all Jedi Walk Their Own Path by Charles Sewell, which I'm pretty sure this is the return of Charles Sewell outside of the comics. I don't know if he's done any of the High Republic comics, but I know he hasn't written a novel since Light of the Jedi, which started the whole thing. That's not to say he hasn't been involved, um, but I think he is there he's their ace in the hole and so they pulled him into this story where bell is trying to find Briaga, who if you remember at the end of phase one um was presumed dead at uh, starlight beacon but bell refused to give up and so uh it was a, it was a great story my only real issue with this story is that i feel it should have been in one of the major novel releases i feel like a lot of people are going to miss this in a collection of short stories and it kind of feels a little bit like din and grogu randomly being reunited in book of boba fett it's like oh we didn't actually have a plan of how we're going to get them together so we're going to throw it in a short story over here and we get to eye of darkness and they're already like bros again (laughs) like it just for me that aspect of it was kind of annoying of i feel like it's going to be an undervalued story because of where it is but I like getting to see Bell really starting to grow up and becoming more like Loden Great Storm in that he is he's confident and he refused to give up refuses to give up in the truth that he believes in. So I thought that was really powerful and I like the uh Bell Loden flashback story showing directly where that attitude comes from and that uh really what's going to help him find his friend is a combination of patience, action, and faith in the Force. And I think that that's what uh, really made Loden Great Storm a great Jedi, is he never sat back on his heels and did anything, but he was always patient in what he did. He trusted the Force was going to work things out in its own time, and that he was just a conduit of that. And we really get to see that in the story with him and Bell as a Padawan, which is the first one we really get. Like, we get some training with them in Light of the Jedi, but Bell is already, you know, of the age that he is. Like, it's not when he was younger. So it was cool to see that connection they had when he was younger and growing up and was a, we'll say, more impressionable Padawan and the impact that the approach of his master had on him moving forward. Made me wish we could uh, could have had more of Loden. Um Dude. More wisdom. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> that was uh, an abrupt end. Him and um, or- Orla. Don't get me started on Orla, okay? <laughs> Those two are uh, uh, stories cut way too short. But I, I literally um, said that after Rising Storm. I was like, so we just got him back just to lose him again? It's not okay. Yes. Yes. It was. Uh, anyway. <laughs> But I did love this look into Loden and how he approaches the problem solving with a heart of service. Mm-hmm. And it's it's scientifically documented that if you serve people, your love for them grows and their hearts will be softened and you can come to understand each other in a way that you never could have 
without giving of yourself first. And I just, again, talk about life lessons, you know, just um, whenever I've had hard times with people in my life, if I've had the presence of mind to remember to serve them in some small way, get them a favorite treat on my way home from work or things like that, that strife and discord between us just melts away like magic. It is such a powerful tool to reaching each other and finding common ground and um, friendship and bonds that you can't do any other way. And this story really, really highlighted how important that approach is to reaching higher goals. So that was my takeaway. Yeah, and and there is a moment in Eye of Darkness, and I'm not going to spoil anything, there is a moment where Belle is starting to make a bad choice and Burry knocks him out of it, not physically, but just kind of wakes him back up to what he's actually doing. And I think that that being able to come back to that and realize that he was going to cause a lot of pain to the people in his charge goes back to how Loden essentially raised him of, of thinking of serving others. And that is really... That's the core of who Bell is, and I think it's why him and Burry connect so much because Burry senses everybody's emotions very intensely. That's like kind of his thing, and Bell is able to put everything aside in in favor of serving others. And so, um, I love it. I love it, and it was really cool too because I don't know if you've watched Young Jedi Adventures or not, but in the most recent releases of episodes there is an appearance by Loden and Belzetafar. And of course you can't have them without Ember. Gotta love a, gotta love a space fire dog. And so, um, if you haven't checked that out, whether you, Amanda, or you, the listener, (laughs) even if you don't want to watch young Jedi adventures, it is really cool getting to see them. And we get a scene actually on starlight beacon. So, um, it's about 15 minutes long. Each, each young Jedi night episode is like 30 minutes, but there's two stories in there. Um, so it's about 15 minutes long. You can watch it and you see that servitude, um, and that grace that bell is able to, to give the young Jedi that he is working with in this particular episode. Uh, he's able to give them that grace to make the mistakes, which is exactly how Loden approached things of, of with regards to training, uh, bell. So that was cool. Um, then we get to my least favorite story in the book, which is Light in the Darkness by Kevin Scott. And it's a story that centers around an Anami named Hoy, which is not a sentence I ever thought I'd say, uh, who lives on a hut-controlled planet and is trying to steal food from the huts to survive. And so basically Hoy has this faith that, that the Jedi will help and keeps the faith despite everyone around him not believing the Jedi are going to show up. And so that was really interesting to see um, how the galaxy's opinion of the Jedi is starting to fracture post starlight. And of course, then as they do, the Jedi show up in, in the form of Keeve Trennis who comes to save the day and reinforces Hoy's belief in the, um, in the Jedi. And we get this closing part. That's very Rose Tico where Keeve is telling Hoy that, that's how we breathe. That's how we beat the darkness. Not by charging across the stars, waving laser swords. Although laser swords are great, we win by sh- by shining whenever 
wherever we are in our homes with the people we love, we win by pushing back the shadows and lighting the way, which if that's not, we win by saving what we love, not killing what we hate or whatever Rose's line is. I don't know what is. So uh, I haven't kept up with the comics, so I don't have a ton of history with Keeve Trennis, but I enjoyed her appearance here. Um, and, and again, like this is, I feel like this is one of those setup stories where it's like, oh, the, the opinion of the Jedi are is changing, um, and it's fracturing, and that it's going to be that reunification of people's belief in the Jedi and the actions of the Jedi that really brings everything together. So, uh, another story that I feel like they're setting up an idea that's going to pay off later in Phase Three. This is also I've. This one was ranked really low for me, too, and I have zero notes on it, which tells you something. (laughs) It was a fine story. It felt like it'd be really good for little kids, maybe, which is great. Little kids need stories, too. I'm a little kid teacher, but um, very successfully indoctrinating, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) just total side note I've got oh my goodness I've got one in particular who just constantly is asking me questions about Star Wars goes home family started watching the movies because of him in in my classroom so that's always fun to see but so this would be a great story perhaps maybe yeah anyway I could see that working for that age group but it seemed a little too convenient for me Mm-hmm. You know, like, how did the Jedi even know? How did Keeve know to be there? I, I get the Force, you know, follow the Force and all that concept. But with so much upheaval going on at that moment in time, I don't know. It just was a little too tied up with a neat bow at the end. That's fair. I, I, I like the idea that the Jedi are still focusing on helping the everyday person. And we see that a lot. Again, I keep going For back sure. to Eye of Darkness, but that's kind of really where Phase 3 kicks off. And, and this second part of the book is that in between time. Um, and so we, we get to see how the Jedi are serving and they're all serving to different capacities and in different ways and feel like they have different responsibilities. And so one important aspect of the Jedi, I think one critical element, if the Jedi are really going to be true to themselves is helping the person in front of you, you know, um, that's what made Qui-Gon a great Jedi. Yes, he he considered galactic things. He considered the prophecies and things like that. But really, he was doing his best to serve the people in front of him. And so we get to see that with Keeve here. And, and it's, again, I like it because it reinforces my theory and I like being right. But I think that we're going to get the... We're going to get a, an episode nine type thing where it's like they don't have a fleet. It's just people. And... Although I have my problems with the execution of Rise of Skywalker, I absolutely love that element of it. So overall, yeah, story was good. No complaints. Moving on. And that brings us to our final story, which is The Call of Coruscant by Lydia Kang, uh, who is making her return after writing the um, one of the installments in Phase 1, and, or excuse me, in Phase 2, and we actually get her writing uh, in the Phase 1 to Phase 3 timeline again. We need a flow chart. It's really confusing. Um, but we get this Padawan, Amadeo Azazo, I think is how you say his name. And basically, you know, the Jedi are called back to Coruscant after the fall of Starlight. And, 
the the Padawan and Madeo sneaks out at night to explore Coruscant, meets a group of friends that shows him a night on the town, and then one asks him to stay and you know give up the Jedi life for uh, air quotes normal life, and he decides that it's not his place in the galaxy and returns back to his master to start working on things post Starlight. Um, again, another fine story. Uh, it's it's good to have these stories where young people find their purpose. It was nice getting to see a story where the the person didn't find something else and go like, oh, that's my purpose, that they actually kind of returned home. So that was really interesting and compelling. Uh, but other than that, not a lot of meat to chew on here. I don't have any background with this particular character. Uh, he's been mentioned in Eye of Darkness, so I'm assuming he's a character that happens in the comics. Uh, but there just wasn't a lot for me to cling on to here. And uh, it was a, a fine story. Um, kind of a weird choice to, to end the book, if I'm being totally honest. But other than that, no serious complaints. Pretty much the same. I am behind on the comics. I subscribe to Marvel Unlimited, which puts you three months behind current releases, which then means I forget about it. <laughs> so I catch up later. Um, I have not. I'm not familiar with this name either. There's nothing really compelling about him to me. I did. I like in a time where it's often um, applauded for people to when for young people when they find go to find their own way, they really go find their own way and truly pave a different path for themselves, which is fine if that's your path, but there's also value in coming back to what you've been taught um, right? and what you believe in. And so I did like that. I really thought the whole time something awful was going to happen. I just felt like, you <laughs> did you too? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a very small story and it felt like, okay, something big has to happen. Yes. And it just didn't. And being the last story, like you said, I was just like, oh. Yeah, I'm okay. not sure... Again, like the the intention of the other stories, I understood, um, at least in terms of of my thoughts of where this High Republic story is going to go. Like, there's it could be that mm-hmm. none of these things pay off. You know, maybe the shield never comes back. Maybe we don't see a unity between the people and the Jedi. Like, it, it's a fifty fifty. Like, there's an equal amount of chance well, that it happens one way or the other. But I could at least place it in these stories with an idea of how it's going to impact the future. Um, and I just couldn't make any predictions about how this is really going to impact the future other than maybe these characters come back. But is this story going to be consequential in Amadeo's story in his relationship with his master? Like it doesn't seem like it's going to be. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I land on that one. Just kind of hangs out there in space a bit. You would almost expect more of a connection too. Um, just, yeah. Anyway, let's... Well, and and most of the High Republic books, even, like, the YA ones, which this would be categorized as a YA, like, leave you with a bit of a cliffhanger. And this one kind of just, it wrapped the story up, and then they're off to go help Starlight, or help with the, the aftermath of Starlight. So... 
Uh, Maybe I need a Marvel post-credit scene or something. Honestly, like there needed to be an <laughs> epilogue or something, but we didn't get that. But we do okay. have we do have more um, High Republic stories coming, and we're going to be covering them right here on Don't Burn the Sacred Text. I know our next High Republic book will be the one that I continually referenced, uh, which is Eye of Darkness. So if I'm you gathering a, you've enjoyed it so far. <laughs> I will say so far so good. I'm about uh, I think I hit page 300. I got about 90 pages left. Um, I will save any other opinions for that if you want yeah, some true. spoilers. Uh, I do know that Drew no, and Devor no. talked about it on, <laughs> on the most recent episode of Clashing Sabers. So if you're considering that or you've read it already and you don't have time to wait to, to talk about it until uh, the Don't Burn the Sacred Text episode comes out, head right on over there. And if you're subscribed to the network, you get all that stuff in your feed right away anyway. So that brings us to our conclusion where we're going to rate the episode uh, the episodes. Goodness gracious, I've been doing a lot of Ahsoka content. We're going to rate this, the book um, overall and see if uh, if that's changed at all. So, Amanda, you started with a roughly a 2.5 to 2.6 repeated. Uh, where do you land after our discussion on these stories? I'm in the same place. I think yeah. it's a solid entry, but nothing remarkable. I, I'm i going to boost it to a 3.25. Uh that is based on the idea that some of these things will be setups that pay off. I didn't really quite realize how much they could be setting up um, until we had this discussion. And so that makes me more excited, which that's one of the metrics I use to determine how good a book is. Like, how excited does it make me about it? And how excited does it make me about future storytelling? And there are certain elements in here that make me pretty excited if they are utilized and paid off. So this is a story and again like this is a transition book um so it's not supposed to do everything but i think it did a good job of, of setting up especially um the time in between the fall of starlight and where we pick up in eye of darkness i appreciated that a lot um and i i didn't realize how much i appreciated the stories of the everyday people and and their impact because I will say for Eye of Darkness, we don't get a lot of that outside of Lena So, which I don't know if you can consider the chancellor of a galactic-wide republic to be the everyday person. Uh, so enjoyed seeing those stories. So if you haven't checked out the book and you've made it this far, it's definitely one I think you should pick up and read. It's a quick read. Amanda read it in about three and a half hours, I think, to make it for this episode. Um, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> I did not read it that quickly, but I definitely think it is worth checking out whether you do it before Eye of Darkness, after Eye of Darkness, uh, however you want to make that happen. I definitely suggest you make it happen. And uh, Amanda, again, thank you for coming on and, and joining us on this episode, for venturing out of your Patreon uh, landscape. My Patreon paywall. <laughs> exactly. You are you're our golden goose, I guess. We keep you behind the paywall. Uh, oh but it's always fun to have you on the episode and talk about it. And we want to hear what you guys think if you've read the book go over to our facebook or twitter uh our instagram let us know how you feel about this book what your ratings are what you think is going to happen in the future of the high republic because there's definitely a lot of good stuff coming and again if you want more of amanda's content and you want to support our mission to uh put books into classrooms across the country and 
indoctrinate, as Amanda puts it, those younger kids, um, but really just get get them reading. Uh, you can do that by joining over on our Patreon. So all those links are in the show notes. I'm not going to make you write them down. Just click the link and you'll be there and you'll be good to go. So uh, Amanda, if they want to keep up with you outside of uh, Patreon, where can they do that? Well, I keep promising myself to uh, increase my activity on the Clashing Sabers Facebook page. So um, here, I'll make my commitment now. I go in these ebbs and flows on social media, but uh, I, when I'm in it, I love being in it. So that's where to find me. And we have some great conversations over there. I'm posting stuff all the time. We've got a bunch of people sharing their ideas, um, some on current Star Wars events and some on... Like somebody just posted about Plagueis the other day and started a whole conversation about Plagueis. So a lot of fun over there. So make sure you do that. And make sure that you keep reading and keep writing. But whatever you do, don't burn the sacred text. All Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of the Clashing Sabers Network and ClashingSabers.net. All licensed sounds and images are the property of their respective copyright holders and are used for informational and educational purposes only. For more information on our nonprofit or to nominate a teacher, go to ClashingSabers.net. For questions or inquiries, please email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. You're just going to walk away?